Amen. All right, my name's Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you would, be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be in verses 15 through 21 this morning. Uh, and as you're turning there, I just want to make sure that we are caught up. This is still the portion of Ephesians where it is a bit, uh, leans a bit more on the imperative, but it is firmly founded on the indicative. So we cannot hear what Paul's saying in the right key if we don't remember uh, of God's profound love for us that began before the foundation of the world. And that's worthy of us pausing for just a moment. Did you hear what I just said? That before even the foundation of the world, so that means before you were you, before you had made the first mistake or your most recent mistake, he decided that he would love you. That is a profound thing. That is not something that makes any sense to us. Uh, the closest that we come is in parenthood, right? Like you, you just have this sense, you, you love your children before they're born, uh, and even after they're born, and sometimes make it a little interesting for that, uh, you continue in that. It doesn't just up and go away. And so that is the Lord our God who uh, loves his sons and daughters with such a profound love. And do remember what Paul prayed for us. It is a love that we don't have in and of ourselves the strength to comprehend. Do you believe that? It's important that you do believe that because if you thought you could, you could understand the height, the breadth, the width, the depth, and all that stuff of God's love, then you have a very low view of it. And I don't know what you're going to do for an eternity since you've already got it all figured out, right? Uh, you better hope it's like a, a cruise line buffet up there or something, and there's some karaoke or something, because uh, otherwise... You, you're going to be bored. But we know, you know, you haven't figured it out. I haven't figured it out. And God's love requires the Holy Spirit's indwelling of us and help to us to even begin to comprehend it. And what's amazing is when you see it in the places that you never would have thought it was there. In some of those dark hallways that you suffered or you, you were hurt or you have hurt or caused others to suffer, and yet God somehow was there, and he was still in some way whispering low or shouting loudly that he loved you. And it's a profound thing when we train ourselves, our eyes to see and our ears to hear, to be able to recognize those things, which is why we encourage you often, take time on the Lord's Day Sabbath, which is today, Sunday, to, to remember God's goodness. It doesn't come natural to us if you don't make the effort to do it. It's not something you cultivate it won't come at all because by nature, we don't express gratitude. And that's what Paul, he, this is a summative passage before he gets into uh, the various uh, practical institutions that the Lord has given for us to display uh, our union with Christ for the life of the world in the world, right? And so um, it's important that we, we keep these things in view. That's God's love that comes first. And remember what it says in chapter 2, that while we were enemies... We had no inclination or turning toward God, right? He loved us. So what does that mean if you become a child of his and you begin to wander astray a little bit? Does he give up on you? Absolutely not. He still loves you. He still pursues. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a singular thing. It's not that he's like, all right, I came after you once, but I ain't, I ain't fooling with you no more. Now God's Patience, there's, there's, there's an end to certain things, but not once he has loved us. It never ends. That's eternal. 
That's important for us to remember because we all get lost sometimes, don't we? We all lose the narrative. We all forget. We all doubt if we're honest. And that's part of the strengthening of our roots and the growing of our faith. In fact, if you're in a season right now where you're in a time of doubt or it's dry or you're in a season of great darkness, remember the light. And remember, actually take heart because on the other side of whatever this is for you is, is going to be something profound and beautiful that God will use for the life of the world. It won't be just for you. It'll be for others around you because the truth of the matter is we all go through similar things, do we not? We really are not alone in any of this. And yet we let the devil sometimes tell us that we are. And so here Paul is calling, uh, gonna call us to an imperative that is so firmly rooted in the indicative that you couldn't do it if he didn't give you the eyes to see and the ears to hear. So I want to pause uh, right now. I want to just pray for the Holy Spirit to, to give us insight into this and for the devil not to kind of pull us away and make us think that he would love us more if we did better, okay? Father, thank you that you are with us now. As you promised, regardless of what we feel you are gathered with your people. Your spirit is at work in our midst already. Would you give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear correctly your word? That we would hear it in the right key through the key of Christ's finished work. The display, the greatest display of your love for us. May we recognize this is not what we do to earn your love. It's what we do to discover how deep and wide and profound it is. God, help us today to draw near to you as you have drawn near to us and to enjoy your presence in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the question that I have for us uh, is, is a very important one. Uh, what most governs how you spend your time and energy? Because this, this is a critically important question for every single one of you. I don't care how young you are, how old you are. There, there are things, and you may say, well, Man, if I'm honest, this forces beyond my control. Well, <laughs> I got news for you. It's all forces beyond your control to some extent, right? That, that are controlling things. But the question is, are you able to leverage it? Are you able to see that it's God's sovereign and good hand at work in it? And you can partner with him so that it doesn't feel quite so out of control. Most of what I would argue that we think governs us, we, we react to instead of being proactive toward. And that's what Paul's going to address this morning. That's what I love about Christianity. That calls us to be an active and an involved people in the spheres where, of influence where he has placed us sovereignly. But so often we feel total just reactionary. And I remember uh, Susan and I, when, when, when our kids were... I think they were elementary school age, and this did not change until they were both out of the house. Um, oftentimes, the best description I could give you of my life is I felt like I was caught in a swiftly rushing stream, and I could not find purchase for my feet anywhere. Like, I was drowning always. Now, is that, is that legitimate? For those of you who have children and jobs and other stuff and marriage, absolutely. It's a very legitimate feeling. In fact, the Bible describes it in a book called Ecclesiastes, right? So the Bible's not ignorant and doesn't say you shouldn't experience that. In fact, it says, no, you will. But the question is, the question is, will you recognize that 
you're actually not caught in a swiftly flowing stream. You are firmly rooted in the love of God, in the person and work of Christ, and that's the foundation from which you will work from as the storms pound against that rock. Remember, Christ said it. He said, the storms, they will come, and you will feel disoriented. It's a great big old world, and a lot of weird stuff happens. But when you cultivate being firmly rooted upon that rock, Sooner or later, you will recognize the storms actually aren't dictating anything. They're just raging against the dying of the darkness because Christ is victorious. And so it's important that we begin to assess what really governs most of how I think about things and how I react to things and begin to assess is the next question I think is even more important. Is what I think of those things, is it rooted in the gospel? Is it, is it in any way, shape, or form biblically true? It may be true in the world, but is it biblically true? We're talking about the difference between perceived truth and ultimate capital T truth, right? And so uh, it's important that we wrestle with this as we step into what Paul's gonna call us to do, and here's the key truth for the sermon this morning. We are called to walk wisely and carefully, seeking to understand the will of the Lord and to be filled with the Spirit to encourage others in joy and thanksgiving for God's goodness. Let me read that again. We are called, commanded, imperatively challenged to walk wisely and carefully seeking to understand the will of the Lord and to be filled with the Spirit to encourage others in joy and thanksgiving for God's goodness. Now, if you would turn with me to the text, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. We'll begin with the first three verses. Listen to what Paul says. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And one of the great things about the providence of the Lord is during this sermon series, I've been in my own devotional time reading and praying through the book of Proverbs. And it's an amazing thing how much of Ephesians parallels a lot of what's being said overall in the book of Proverbs, using very similar language. Uh, and, and so um, it's, it's been good for me to have to think through some of these things because Paul's using Old Testament language when he speaks of wisdom and foolishness and hope and these different things. And so he begins because he's connecting this to the fact that we are the light. Remember what he said last week, Christ is the light. And by virtue of us being in Christ, we are the light And it is our calling to expose the works of darkness. Now, remember what that doesn't mean. Does that mean we're to go around making people feel horrible about who and what they are doing? Who they are and what they're doing, right? Is that what we're supposed to do? To make sure they know you're going to burn for this. Or is what we're to do actually to call them to the, the abundant life in Christ, to repent and turn from their sin, which, by the way, remember what we've said all along, and it's important that you remember this. Nothing that you do that's sinful is actually truly selfish. Why? Because it's killing you. What kind of selfish person 
destroys themselves. That's not selfish at all. That's actually foolish. It's the antithesis to wisdom. In fact, if you were selfish, you would want to get as close to that which is going to grant you eternal life as you possibly could. Your true selfishness would be spending time in the Word. True selfishness would be becoming a person of prayer. True selfishness would be serving others and growing in love. Would that that would be what we would be accused of. You all love selfishly. Because again, remember, Christ did what he did for the joy of us being redeemed. Now, I know that selfish, the word selfish has a bad rap in our culture, but I want to point out just how odd our thinking is on this topic, right? So if we truly understood what sin was doing, we would run from it as scripture calls us to do. And so Paul here is saying that since you're of the light, Christ is the light, and you are to call other people to newness of life in this light, then you need to look carefully how you walk. Because this isn't just about you. It's about how it affects everyone else, right? And so the command to look uh, carefully means that we are to assess where we're going. That is to be proactive, right? Not to just be reactive. You're not to stand in one place, see what's going to happen, and then move on as you go, right? Um, and so, so it's important that we recognize he's calling us to the proactive life. He's saying you need to look carefully at the whole of your life. How you walk is how you live, right? This is how you're actively going about things in the world. So it's to assess is this that I'm doing, is this thing that I'm engaging in, is this job that I'm going to take, is this decision that I'm going to make as to where I live, is this decision as to who I'm going to date, is this decision about uh, any of the things that matter to our lives, is it in accord with wisdom? Is it going to, and this is what makes one wise, is it going to draw me closer to Christ or ultimately drive me further. Is that how you make the majority of your decisions? Is that the first thing that comes to your mind, or do you do, you do what all the rest of us do, and I am numbered among you? You look at it and say, like Eve, huh, that looks good. That's a, that job looks good. I can make a lot more money. I'm going to have to work on Sunday. It's going to take me over. But, you know, I can, podcast, I can, do, I, I can pick this up wherever, right? Because I'm special. I'm different than all those other fools that have to go to church all the time. Or do you look at it and say, oh, no, that, that's going to meet all, all the needs that I currently know I have as you look through a glass darkly, not really knowing what your needs are in any given period of time. Because by the way, your needs at 20 are very different than your needs at 30 and even very different than your needs at 40 and 50. So you may want to try to look a little further down the line before you make that decision at 20 for the short run, right? And so are we like Eve making our decisions based on what it looks like to us and then asking God on the backside to bless what we've already decided? One of the things I find fascinating as a pastor is very few times do people actually come seek us for counsel. It's one of the, the, probably the more uh, difficult parts of my job. I would love 
to be busy walking with you through trying to make wise decisions instead of trying to clean up after foolish decisions, right? I would, I, again, I'm a, I'm a terrible mortician, mainly because I believe in resurrection. I'm going to keep pounding on your chest long after you're dead, which is not going to help you and not, not make you look better in the casket. Um, I, I'm a terrible funeral pronouncer. I, I would much rather speak blessing. I would much rather speak to wisdom, speak wise counsel. I would much rather cry out to the Lord to see something reconciled and redeemed, no matter how hard it is, than to pronounce discipline or judgment or sorrow. That's true of every single one of us that serves as an elder deacon who's on staff. We, we, would, we would much rather serve you with the best of our abilities. But so often you've already decided. That's why you didn't come and ask us. You may come and ask us to bless it. But you didn't necessarily ask us what we thought. I'm not getting on to you. I'm saying use us selfishly in the right way. Right? Make use of what we, where we can be of the greatest service to you. Now, a lot of you are probably thinking, I know what you're going to say. That's why I don't come talk to you. I know exactly what you're going to say. Ask my wife. Do they know what I'm going to say? I'm a wild card. I can come up with some stuff. <laughs> and a minimum, no matter what I say, I'm going to try to make it at least funny. Uh, and so uh, just to get out of it. So, but, so you get something out of it. But you, you don't know what I'm going to say. You presume. And maybe you're right once in a while, but does that make it wrong because you knew? And should it maybe be that you were put in some sort of accountability with it? which is really what we don't want if we're honest. I don't want, because Cameron, will, that, that joker will follow up with you. He'll check and make sure you're doing what you said you were going to do. The audacity, as if it were his job. <laughs> yeah, I'm, just know I'm going to be held accountable for that stuff in all seriousness. I will have to stand before the Lord and answer for these things. I don't take that lightly, nor should you. So Paul calls for us to be proactive, so look carefully how you live. And so you have, to, you have to say, well, what does that mean? Well, remember what the Psalm 119 tells us. May the word be a lamp unto our feet. So the word is a great help to us to understand what it means to walk carefully. You have to understand what your own predilections and temptations are. Those of us who've been reading through uh, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, one of the great things I try to get people to understand or think through is if you were the devil, how would you come after you? Because oftentimes you know pretty well where your weak spots are, you just hate to admit them. And you like to play with fire, as we all do. None of us are above that. Let me see if I'm stronger than I used to be. <laughs> As if that, your strength is what makes Christ look good. What's Paul say? No, it's actually in your admitted humility and weakness that Christ is exalted. It is in your willingness to say, hey, I need some help. But just so you don't think I live in a glass house, I'm one of, if not the last, person who will ask for help on the planet. I don't take pride in that. In fact, I'm trying to undo that because I think it's been very costly to me relationally. It's part of how I grew up, like a lot of you. I, 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 there's reasons why I think the way I do. It factors in both nature and nurture, right? The way I was wired and the way I've been shaped. 
I'm very much a lone wolf. I don't like to, I like to, I like to run trim. I don't, I don't, well, not here, but run trim. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying, I'm working on it. Uh, but I like to run trim. I don't like to have a bunch of factors going on and have to keep up with a bunch of people. I like to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it and move quick. Right? That's respectable, but that's, that's not always healthy or good. It's bad Presbyterianism, actually, as it turns out. And so it's important that, that we recognize that one of the greatest gifts that will help us to look carefully how we walk is the community of people around us, those who know us the most that Christ has placed around us, and the word that knows us the deepest. And so in order for you to look carefully, you have to think through where are your weaknesses and how will, you, how will Christ redeem them? How can Christ use them for the good of the kingdom and they're not going to hamper you? We've all got them. What are your strengths? And how can Christ use them? Leverage for the good of the kingdom so that the life of the world uh, would be something important to us. You're not going to save the whole world, but at least in your spheres of influence. And so this call to look carefully then how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, is very important, right? So what are some of the characteristics of the unwise according to Proverbs? Well, let me help you out since I've been studying it. And by the way, this is a plug. We're going to study the book of Proverbs next fall, I think it is, uh, because I think it's really important that we grow in wisdom. But part of being unwise is you make rash decisions, how many of you are rash decision makers? Here's been my motto. I'd rather get to doing something and take the time to clean up after myself, after I've messed it all up, than sit around and do nothing, staring at my navel. Right? I can tell you this, we're not going to form a committee to decide. Those words have fallen from my lips. Yeah, I can be rash. You too can be rash. And really, what's rashness about? Who are we putting our trust in when we are rash? Ourselves. What, what are we not taking up? Means of grace. Right? Another thing that's part of patently unwise is you speak before you listen. I've done that a time or two. Or a thousand, a million Right? Very convicted by that because so often what causes our relational issues, if you think about it, it truly is miscommunication. It all, it all comes off the rails there. Like if you don't have good communication, I don't care how much of whatever else you got. Sooner or later, you got to pay the ferryman for that one. So it's critical that we grow in our ability to understand it. This isn't just listening. It's actually hearing and the Proverbs say understanding. That is next level, is it not? Truly understanding where the other is coming from and esteeming them is greater than yourself. That's what the wise person does. But the, but the unwise person, the foolish person, they pop off. And they say things like this. Well, I was just being honest. And it'd be funny if the other person said, no, actually what she was doing was being foolish. If they had the courage to say that back to the person who was being honest, but it could get weird after that, Right? Uh, but so often that we try to hide behind our rashness and our, our lack of hearing and thought with something that really you can't declare. You being honest is not the same thing as it being true, is it? I've been, I, Susan could tell you, I've been wrong at the top of my lungs a few times. 
I was, I was willing to ride the ship all the way down just so I didn't look bad. Oh, no, you look great drowning. Yeah. Another ca characteristic of the unwise is they lack generosity. They don't care about other people. They only care about themselves in the worst possible way because their, their care for themselves is actually a destructive care, which affects everybody around them. So to walk as the unwise is to be rash, shoot your mouth off, not care about other people, not be generous, and not be proactive. You wait and see. In fact, one of the Proverbs I read this morning, it was fascinating to me. It says, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the streets. I guess I'll die in the streets. Wait, why does that make sense? So what is the sluggard saying he's not going to do? Anything about what he knows. If you knew there was a lion in the streets... What should you do in wisdom? Avoid the lion? Kill the lion? Do something better than that? Then just give up? Now, the wise, they're going to take their time to make a good decision. Remember, Jesus said this. So we have it on good authority. He said, who sets about building something that they don't count the cost and think it through? Right? As James tells us, be quick. Be so quick to listen and make sure you understand where someone else is coming from. Think about how hospitable a thing that is. Think about how honoring and uplifting and building up that is when somebody actually feels heard, which means they are of value to you that you are willing to take the time to understand them. I've transgressed that too many times, and I'm convicted deeply of it. And the wise person is also extremely generous because they know that God is the giver of all good gifts and there's nothing they can't depart with because their soul, their person is sealed and hidden with Christ on high. So there's nothing that they can't afford to give away to better other people. So those are just a few of the things and there's a number more yet in the book of Proverbs but that helps us just see there is a radical difference between the unwise and the wise. And many of us display the characteristics of both. And do you just become wise and just stay there and grow a long beard and people visit you and you drink tea and you can practice Kung Fu? No. No, you have to continue to cultivate it, which is why this is an ongoing verb. This look is not a one-time deal. It's daily. Daily you have to look carefully at how you walk. It's been an amazing thing for me to testify to you that as I have uh, been much more intentional in prayer, it's been a beautiful thing to see how the Lord has changed my heart and I've gone into some very difficult circumstances and seen the Lord at work so that I walked away giving him thanks and not thinking, wow, Cameron, you did an amazing job. And the Lord longs to give us, to guide us, to grant us wisdom because he is the knowledge and wisdom, and Christ is the embodiment of that. So what we're essentially, what Paul's saying here is be careful to walk like Christ. Be careful to display his characteristics in the world. We don't like asking ourselves that question. We like to hide behind false humility. And be like, you know, I, I mean, I ain't no Jesus. I mean, how, how, do you, how are you going to call yourself Jesus? 
Well, you're not calling yourself Jesus. You're recognizing what you are indwelt by and what you can reflect because of what he's done, not because of who you are. Very much in spite of it, which makes it all the greater grace. Amen? Notice we didn't get a lot of amen on that one, but I, I, it's fair. I'm not going to ask you for more. And he goes on to say that we are to make the best use of our time. Josh has mentioned this recently, and I've said it a number of times. Many of us live as if we have an eternity to blow. We'll just get to that at some point. Now, this is a critical importance for those of you in elementary, middle, high, and college to think through uh, how you use your time. That even now, you can begin to cultivate a life uh, that can be uh, abundant in its grace and mercy and love for greater days than some of us who are older than you. Don't just think, if I just get through this, the next part's going to be easier. Those over the age of 60, what would you say to them? It is not easier. And I'm not over 60, I'm 47 approaching. It doesn't get easier. You just got through with one part. This is, again, remember Ecclesiastes and all of its painful truth. Remember that the Bible has called you to greater life than just pushing the hands of the clock forward just to get to the next level. No, instead, cultivate the moments that you're in so that you can have a greater storehouse of wisdom long into your life. I squandered so much of my first 26, 27 years I still bear the scars of those things. I still am in some measure having to dig out from under those old ways, those old wounds, both inflicted upon and self-inflicted and inflicted upon others. I wish somebody had told me this sooner, and I wish I'd have had the ears to hear if they'd have said it, because it doesn't come natural to us. This is why we need Jesus first. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, you can't see it without the Spirit. You can't hear it if he doesn't transform your senses. So would that we would recognize we don't have an eternity to blow. In fact, Psalm 90 tells us that we should ask the Lord to teach us to number our days so that we would get, and I love the way it says this, a heart of wisdom. That we would know how to live, to use the days that have been granted to us. So here Paul says, don't act as if you have an eternity to blow because the days are evil in the sense that the principalities and powers of darkness, they think they're winning. They think that Christ somehow can still yet be dethroned or kept from the throne. And what's the truth? That's not true. He has won. He does reign. He does sit on the throne, even though, as Hebrews 2 tells us quite honestly, it doesn't feel like it some days. But it's important that we remember its truth and live under that king instead of the tyranny of a broken and fallen world that keeps saying to us, you are worthless. You don't matter. You are cannon fodder. You aren't what you could be. Why can't you be better? Why can't you be you but better than that? You're never going to be enough. Or sometimes they'll fool us and say, no, you're the greatest thing on earth. You're the most important being in all the universe. That's even more devastating, I think, to believe that we are the main character in this redemptive story. 
And so Paul calls us to look so carefully how we walk, to, to think through how we live, both in terms of what we're tempted by and where we're going so that we would be proactive in engaging in this next part, which is the will of God. So this is always a struggle for people to answer. Fascinates me. Because we like to personalize the will of God. What's the will of God for my life? I don't know. But I can tell you what the will of God is overall and how it connects to your life. What is the will of God? To be with his people. How's that going to happen if he's separated from them by sin? Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. So that which has kept us from him, if his will is to be with his people, then that which keeps us from him has to be removed. And in Christ, it is removed. This is why we are the children of light who come proclaiming, right, that redemption is here. You can be reconciled to God through faith by his grace in Christ alone. What a gift that we get to tell that story. How many other competing narratives are there? It's been interesting. I'm reading Dostoevsky's uh, The Writer's Diary, which is this really strange thing that he did in trying to interpret the world. And he's got this really interesting view of time uh, that I've kind of gotten into. And it, it's kind of over, uh, oversees part of the book. And Dostoevsky had a belief of some kind, but... but Here's where I thought it got a little fuzzy in terms of the sovereignty of God. He, he often talks about how time, in terms of the present, it can't be known at all because there's so many different possibilities, right? And so what we do with the past is we truncate the past based on the result, and we think, well, that's the only thing that could have happened, even though, as Tolstoy argues as well, a million different things could have happened. Right? Right? <laughs> And so, so, but what he's leaving out is the sovereign hand of God who loved us before the foundation of the world, who has decided some things that are very important to the redemption of his people. And so when we engage in telling the story, it's not, it's not that we are making something happen. There's not a million different options when you share the gospel with someone. There's one. Whether or not the Spirit has given them the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Right? And what a gift that it's not dependent upon us. And it ain't dependent upon them either. It's dependent upon the move and the work of the Spirit. Now, I know that that can be disconcerting to us in some other ways. But do remember, as you look around this room, that God clearly is not as discerning as we think he ought to be sometimes. He's picked some folks who probably ain't got no business preaching. I'll start there. He's picked some folks to lead who probably struggle with their tempers, who struggle with finding the right words to say, who struggle with maintaining a prayer life that's consistent, who, who, who struggle with loving people as they ought, who struggle with loving their families as they ought, much less anybody who ain't blood. And all those could be just me. I didn't throw stones at anybody else. And so what we see is God is far more gracious than we are, but we've been set free, set loose to join in the eternal work 
right? That we could actually do some things in this world that translate into the next and will be worthy of our excitement and joy and gratitude. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says about this portion of the text. He says, Paul's words imply that in living the Christian life, we need to think about what we're doing. I, I just, so often, that's, I, if I could just, like, just please think about it. Uh, I would, with my kids, I, they would do something, and I'd always say, and they hated this question, by the way. It was the most fearsome question of all. Why'd you do it? You know what the unacceptable answer was? That it caused the punishment to be that much worse? Oh, no. Perfectly acceptable. And, and I told them this. Like, I handed them the keys to the kingdom, and they never used them, which was fascinating to me. I said, you can say, because I wanted to. And that would be a more honest confession than I don't know. You're not going to get in more trouble because you tell me that's what you wanted to do. But at least own it. Did they do it? One time. Not one time. <laughs> I wanted to be a gracious and merciful father. They just wouldn't let me. That's what I tell them now, anyway. And we're the same way. So much that we know. We know what's unwise. And yet, every time, we roll the dice. Try it one more time. I'm going to go with the hot read one more time. I'm going to let my temper fly one more time. I'm not going to listen one more time. I don't have to do all that. That's how I'm made. God made me, he's got to fix it. We did in Jesus. The question is, will you cultivate what's been fixed? So Ferguson goes on. We need to think about what we're doing and to look to make sure we're on the right path. This requires wisdom. Wisdom to see the dangers, temptation to sin, the weakness of the flesh, and opposition from Satan. And wisdom to know how to respond in a godly and biblically instructed way. I'm fascinated by how often we are unwilling to pursue very quickly reconciliation with those the closest to us. We're perfectly willing to just let it go. Or let it fester. Do nothing with it. It makes no sense to the gospel at all. And he goes on. Wisdom is the ability to process knowledge into the practical ability to apply it to life situations and circumstances. It involves knowing how to achieve the best ends in the best way. Best being qualified by Christ and the glory of God, right? Not best according to you. So, are you more proactive or reactive in how you live? Right? Think about that. Which one are you? Are you more proactive or reactive? And whose fault is that? Is it your circumstance? Eh, if you're 10, yeah, maybe. But if you're over 18, probably not so much. Is it what you've cultivated in the last year that's leaving you in this place and giving you no room to react any different than what you've got? You can't, you can't do more with what you have than is in the cup. And so this is worth us considering. Which am I? more proactive, reactive, and how can I become more proactive in the means of grace? Now, what I don't want you to hear is that I just said, unless you're praying a couple hours a day, getting in the Word a couple hours a day, 
Um, serving the poor a couple hours a day, which, by the way, doesn't leave you any time for a job, family, or anything else. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that you have an intentionality about your growth and you're intentional about cultivating wisdom so that you can look carefully at how you live. That you would have some means by which you're seeking to grow in the power of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So that's the next question. So what is actually helping you to grow in practical wisdom for life and understanding that will lead, uh, that, that grants you a greater understanding of the will of the Lord for your life? There is a personal aspect to this, and it's always to draw you closer to him through the specific situations in which you're in, right? That's pretty critical. So what's helping you do that? If you're like, nothing, well, okay, that, that's, that's a good place to make an appointment and come talk to one of us or to meet with some of us so that we can walk you through and help you think through what might be helpful to you. Right? So you're not hearing the wrong thing in the wrong key. Because again, we're such weird perfectionists. Well, if I can't read through the Bible in 20 days, and I ain't doing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, that's steep. Or even if I can't, if I, you know, how many of you shipwrecked your Bible reading plan and so you did it somewhere about February or March, somewhere in Numbers, Leviticus, justifiably so it feels like, uh, and you just quit reading the Bible for the rest of the year. You're like, ah, slate's broken, it's ugly, I don't want to be a part of it, I'll try again next January 1. Don't think like that. The God of the universe has way more power than all that. He's got way more that, that he, can, he can transform 60 seconds into an entire distance run, to kind of quote Kipling. So if you're struggling with what to do, come talk to us, and we'll be happy to help you think through that for you personally so you could draw closer to the Lord. Let's turn back to the text and look at verses 18 through 21 as we transition quickly here to the table. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for, ev and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, why does he pick drinking in particular? Was this the first teetotaler? First real Baptist in the Bible? No. He picks it because it is what the fool does. So you see, this is a hallmark of the fool in Proverbs is that they eat, drink, and be merry because what does it matter? There's also the fool in Luke chapter 12 in the parable of the rich fool who's like, I got all kind of stuff stored up. I'm good from here on out. I ain't got to worry about anything. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. And God says to him, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you. You're going to lose it all. And so what he's saying here is that one of the hallmarks of the foolish one who has no hope in the future, has no hope in Christ, is that they live for today. They live for their flesh. They satisfy their desires. And so he says, don't do that. But instead, instead be filled with the Spirit. So how are we filled with the Spirit? So we would know and grow in Christ, right? So what did Christ promise? If you have the Spirit, if you know him, the Spirit resides within you. And it's up to you to understand how full and precious and incredible and awesome a thing that is, right? Right? 
that it would be you who would cultivate what that means, that you would lean into that because the Spirit leads and guides. And the result of that would be that we would be a gift to each other. How many of you, you just, you, you, you think, man, I, I can't wait to get around somebody uh, who, who is lifeless and hates everything and complains about everything. Like, I, how long of a meal can we schedule? I know that sounds slightly cruel, but it's just, we're just, it's just, we, we, that's tough. That's tough sledding. We should love those people. We should sit with them on the ash heap. Do not get me wrong here. But it's not your first choice, right? And this is one of the great difficulties at times within our own church because we are so non, we don't express much, do we? Kind of hide our emotions pretty well. Keep our hands down. We don't let them move past our hips because that could be seen as charismatic or something instead of biblical. And so, so at times, we can, we can fail to express any sort of joy in what it is that Christ has done for us. Sometimes we've accepted it as doctrinaire instead of newness of life. We've accepted it as dead cold fact instead of the flame that burns deep within us to long for others to join us at the great marriage supper feast that is coming, and even the feasts that go between the now and the not yet. And so it is a gift to the church as a whole that we would be growing in wisdom and able to share that with one another, to share the joy of the Lord with each other. And to do that in a number of ways, by quoting scripture to each other, like the Psalms and being able to sing out. This is why it's so critical. I, I get it. Music is such a visceral phenomenon. We have our preferences. We have what we think is right, which I just find fascinating when it comes to music, that is so diverse over the whole of the world and all of history. Right? We're like, yeah, man, no, it didn't, they, they didn't, church didn't get it right until about 1550. <laughs> what happened to the church prior to? What did they do in Jesus' day? Was it not the church? Is sacred music only that which is old, or is it that which is glorifying to God and correct biblically? Is it certain notes, and where is that? Would that we would instead be able to appreciate the words themselves, right, and be able to sing in such a way that it, for those around us, they recognize, no, something is good and at work in this people here. I didn't just stumble into a funeral. Or worse. And so, this should fill us with joy, this thing that Christ has done for us, this filling of the Spirit. And I get it. We express in different ways. I know a bunch of you are thinking, man, because I, I don't, I don't, I'm not super expressive. Except when I get up here, I'm not super expressive when I'm down there. I've raised my hands like four times in the history of my Christianity. And all four times, it meant something. I've almost done it here a couple of times, but I'm afraid y'all think something's breaking out. And so we need to be able to share this joy with one another because God is good. Notice what it says, that we are the people who see and hear that he is in what? Everything, everything, and every good gift comes from his hand. Susan has a coworker, and I don't know the current circumstance, who has a daughter, uh, who just passed away uh, this morning, I think. 
Our daughter had uh, transplants for liver and kidney, and it didn't go well. And they knew she was going to pass soon. And guess what they planned around her bed? A worship service. Because she was going home. Wow. How do you do that? Susan was very moved by that last night. I'm clearly moved by it now. How do you do that? Unless the joy of the Lord is in you and you know that he's in everything and every good gift, even the departing of this world when we didn't plan to go, is good gift too. Because we will be in our Father's embrace. For those of us who know Jesus, which is why it's so important that we not act as if we have an eternity to blow, it is so important that we recognize this is to be given away. And we are to be welcoming people into something of substance. And in so doing, what that allows us to do is serve one another without requiring anything in return. Some of the besetting sin of the church is we're always looking for, okay, but what can I get out of this? Instead of where can I serve, where can I, where can I help make this my church, our church, us together? You know, when people leave so often, it's because we lack, it's something we lacked to be able to give them. That's shooting fish in a barrel. There's so much we lack and there's so much we can't provide. It's crazy. But what would it look like if instead of only considering ourselves, we began to turn and think about others and think about how we might, as a group of people, display this incredible and beautiful redemptive story in a way that is tangible and attractive and hospitable. That's what Paul is calling us to and that's going to become critical as we transition into the institutions that he has set up. Marriage, parenthood, work. Because those things are hard enough in and of themselves. And if you don't understand the purposes for those things, they're incredibly difficult to live out. We need each other. Listen to what Stephen Fowle says about this portion of the scripture. He says, Ephesians began with a powerful expression of praise which reminded believers that the ultimate purpose of God's redemption of the world is so that the world can fulfill its proper vocation of praising God. Did you hear that? Why were people created? Why was creation created? To give glory to God, to give praise to the Lord. And so the fall didn't take that away, but it marred it and made us blind to it and deaf to it. We still are called to praise the Lord for all that he has done for us. And we get invited into that great redemptive drama that is eternal, not just temporary. I've been reading the Greeks. You know, we think a whole lot of the Greeks. They're gone, except for the few books we have left. In fact, we have so few of what they actually wrote that we're not even sure we have the best stuff. We just have what survived. It's pretty good. Don't get me wrong. Just read the Odyssey. Loved it. But we're not even sure of, of that what is truly was the Odyssey, how much has been added to and taken away from and all that kind of stuff. But their, their civilization, for all that we look up to it, didn't last. They got the Romans coming next. They didn't make it either. And guess what history will probably recognize about our American culture? If the Lord grants so many hundreds of years for them to gain perspective and look back on it, Think about all the kingdoms that have risen and fallen. 
And so would that we would be a people who would recognize what we were created for and what doesn't change no matter what changes around us. He says here toward the end of the epistle, Paul again turns his attention to the praise of God. In this case, the praise of God is tied up with the role of the Spirit in the lives of the believers. Working in and through believers, the Spirit both reforms and redirects their praise and worship of God. In the light of the overall concern of this passage with walking wisely, it becomes clear that the worship of the Christian community in Ephesus is the context where the Ephesians, Ephesian believers will best learn to walk wisely. Worship matters. For those of you, Josh asked the question, what are some of your practices? Well, we weekly give you, just, just by virtue of you showing up, you got some practices. That, that confession, that congregational confession, that confession of sin that so many people struggle with. I, you know, I'm not guilty of that, so I ain't saying that. Instead of hearing that, no, the greater part of that is the declaration that you're forgiven. You get to say it because of who God is, not because of who you are. You get the assurance of pardon. You, you're reading the word. You're engaging the word on a weekly basis. Don't discount this. Count it. But not as more than or more important than the other means of grace that you need to be addressing otherwise. And so what most dictates your mood and affect or your expressions and your emotions? This is another tough question, isn't it? If I were to follow you around or just put a little mini cam so I could watch you in your quiet moments, so you thought, uh, and your, your, your range of emotions and expressions throughout the day, and I could pop in and just ask, hey, what, what dictated that? How would you answer those questions? Because something is often dictating, again, because we're reactive instead of proactive, so much of who we are and what's being displayed is a reaction instead of a proactive, cultivated, wise, thought-through thing. And then what are you doing to encourage others in the joy of the Lord? So often when we ask each other, how are you doing spiritually? We make the mistake of not answering the greatest question of all, which is how are you growing in love? Loving your neighbor and loving God. And then what could you give thanks to God for in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? According to this passage, it's simple. Everything. But it's good to get specific, isn't it? And be able to declare the different things where God displays his love for us uniquely. So there's two things we want to walk away with from Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, and that's that we are taught or called to walk wisely and carefully seeking to understand the will of the Lord, and that we're to be filled with the Spirit and encourage others in joy and thanksgiving for God's goodness.